So, today we're going to talk about uh, inspired or inspiration, how God communicated uh, what he wanted to communicate to us, the Bible. We're going to talk about inerrancy in the Bible, but the Bible is inerrant, and we'll talk about what that explain, what that means. We'll explain what that means. We're going to talk about the canon, and that's not the thing that goes boom. That's uh, the measuring stick by which we determine what books of antiquity from Christian literature belong in the Bible and which don't. And then we're also going to talk about hermeneutics, which is the <clears throat> the the, um, the uh, academic term for the rules for understanding Scripture. So let's talk first about inspiration. Uh, scripture is entirely inspired or God-breathed. Hi guys. Sorry. Sorry. No problem. I think this is going to be our time. <laughs> yeah, I've got some books out here, I think. They're sitting on the table. Oh, okay. okay. I took flack this morning for poaching you guys. Oh. So you are loved in that other group. We are what? You are loved. Oh. And the, the faith building. You didn't get black from the out part of that group. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Maybe they didn't know you were here. No don't, don't sweat in the back door. <laughs> Shay was like, you know, he was like giving it to me this morning. And, um, so we had just started. We're going to talk about four things about Scripture. The first one we're going to talk about is, is the Bible and inspiration. Uh, so we know from what God's Word tells us is that scripture is entirely inspired or God-breathed. That's what the word literally means. Being God-breathed or God-filled, all prophecy has its origin with God and not with men. So uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And literally... It means filled with God's breath, uh, like someone being resuscitated almost, or maybe filling up, blowing up a balloon, you know. They, they came empty, and God filled them, all right? So that's one thing that we need to, one component of inspiration. Another component of inspiration that we learn from Scripture is that men were carried along, they were moved uh, by the Holy Spirit, who had them write, what God revealed. Uh, Peter wrote, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy has never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were, here it is, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Probably the best picture of that is the whole idea of being in a sailboat. Have you had anybody ever gone sailing? Oh, it is amazing. I love sailing. It's one of my most favorite things to do. Um, hold on one second. Let me, uh, kid, for those of you who are new here, there are some uh, folders for you right there. So please take one. Yeah. And then, David, could you give them another uh, set of... Uh, for today's uh, notes for today's discussion. There's more coming back. Word got out, word got out, Wayne. Gotta get a bigger room. Yeah. So now I have to disappoint you. No, we're not grooming donuts. <laughs> they got donuts upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> He's he welcome me to take one. Yeah. So we're really glad you're here. Try to get here on, uh, by 9 o'clock ish because we usually have a lot to go through. Um, I'm sorry, we really tried hard today. Oh, you know what? Give me 20. I, well, yeah. uh, now I get you. Yeah, I'll take that too. So, uh, men carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, we've, we found out that men were filled by the Holy Spirit. And now men are moved by the Holy Spirit. So they're moved along. And that's kind of like being in a, a, a sailboat. As the, the wind propels the sailboat. 
That's that's what the Holy Spirit did with uh, uh, with these men. I, I, one of the most fun things I've ever done in the sailboat is hang over the side holding onto a rope while it's going. You cannot believe how powerful the wind is when you do that. I mean, when a, a gust hits that sail, there's so much power that it just about lifts you and pops you right out of the water. It is amazing. Well, that's what's happening with these men as they're being moved along by the Holy Spirit. They, I believe that they were sitting there writing stuff down, and Peter's going, I don't write like this. Where did this come from? You know, not that he was like ignorant of the words that he was writing down, but the magnitude and the beauty of them, I think, surprised him. You know, and, and I, I hope you, you know, I, I hope that you all have an experience like that at some point where you sit down and maybe you studied something or maybe you journal some of your, your writing, you know, some of the reading of the things that you read in the Bible, and, and you just look at it and you go, wow. The Holy Spirit must have done that because I don't think like that. I just, that's that's like, that's better than what Wayne can do, you know? So, so, so far we've seen that they're filled and they're carried along. But the other thing is that what's, what's being done in them is something that the Spirit is speaking to them with. King David acknowledges this as being true of his writings. So, by the way, the key on this is that I've tried to underline all the entries into your notes so that you know that the underlined word is probably the one that goes into your notes. And my hope is that at the end of this, this whole class, if you keep coming to you know, all of them, is that you will have a completed book that's got kind of a touch base of a lot of theology that you can take a look at. So, and you can have. Because the best way... To know a counterfeit is not to study the counterfeit, but to study the real thing. Okay? So you'll be able to maybe hear somebody say something and you'll say, you know what? I don't think people that die become angels. Angels are unique creatures because of what you'll learn. And you'll be able to share that with them because there are a lot of misconceptions that are out there. Okay, so 2 Samuel. Uh, it's recorded of this by David. David said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. So there's a sense that God fills a person to write the Bible. He moves the person to write the Bible. And apparently, that there is actually words that were on his tongue. I mean, all of a sudden, he just experienced. I mean, I've had times when God is like, like, inspired me to say something. It's not scripture, but it's something I wouldn't have known. It, and I just, I feel the words kind of like forming my head or something. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, where did that come from? A lot of that sometimes has to do with like when I'm preparing for a message or something. I'm up there giving the message, and then all of a sudden the spirit is like, you gotta say this too, Wayne. <laughs> you know? And I think that's the Holy Spirit giving me words, you know, and, and I, he does that, he will do that to all of us. So, the Bible, aren't there mistakes in it? Well, actually, you know, we're going to talk about this thing called inerrancy. Because we believe the scripture originated with God and not with man, that's what the Bible was telling us, that God breathed scripture into their minds moving them to write. We believe scripture, ready for this, is fully without error or completely inerrant. Fully, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some boundaries on that, okay? Because, uh, for instance, you're going to say, well, you know, I read this passage where it said that God's going to gather up his people under his wings. Does that mean that he's a bird? Well, the, some of the boundaries of that is that we also have to make an allotment for figures of speech. Just the way we do in life, we, we say similes and, and metaphors to try and ex to describe things that we're trying to explain with somebody. So by this we mean that God superintended every word of the original autograph. All right, that means that the first time 
that one of the writers of Scripture began writing it, that was inspired. That was inspired. That was inspired by God. It was superintended by God so that there were no mistakes. Therefore, the original Scriptures are completely without error in the whole or in part, and is without error in everything that it affirms to be true. This is called plenary inerrancy. So, we don't have any original documents. That's just the way it is. But we have found documents, tens of thousands of documents, that go back to like the first generation uh, that, that, uh, that followed the apostles. In fact, I think they recently found a little portion that they think is from the Gospel of Mark that maybe goes back to the year 40 or 45, you know, which would have been like the same, the same kind, the same period that Mark actually wrote it. So, so far we see that it's completely and fully without error. In the original autographs, not in the copies, but the original ones. And then second, is that this is called plenary inerrancy. I'm going to try and give you a couple metaphors. All right? So tell me, who's writing the note? The pen or the person? The person. You sure? I mean, I see the pen doing the writing. I mean, it's leaving the ink there. Okay. No, I'm, what I'm saying is you're right. It's actually the person that's doing it. And, you know, and the pen is just an instrument. So I want you to think this way, okay? God goes over here, picks up Don, and starts writing with him. God picked up, you know, one of the writers of Scripture, literally grabbed them and used them like an instrument to write his thoughts down. So that's part of the picture of what this looks like when we talk about inspiration and inerrancy. So what we see here is the pen can only write what the hand is doing, what the hand is writing, okay? Peter could only write what God was leading him to do. He was incapable of writing on his own because the Holy Spirit had, number one, filled him, had moved him and had given him the words. Okay? So here's another picture. Maybe. There it is. Good. So, which one is true? The paper written with the red marker, the pencil, or the one done with the paintbrush? Which one is true? They're all three. They're all true, right? Yeah, they're all they all say true. They're all spelled correctly. But here's the thing that's really interesting about it. If I took the pen away, you know which one was written by the red marker. If I took the pencil away, you'd say, "Oh, that's written by a pencil," right? If I took the paintbrush away, you still would know that that was written by a brush. But they were all true. When God writes with a human being, okay. He lets them have their own characteristics. When Peter writes, you know it's Peter writing. You know, he's not, he's not writing uh, to change Peter's character. When, when, when theologians sit down and they know language, and they read Peter, they know it's Peter. You know, they know. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's his, he's kind of like, from what I understand, his ability to to uh, write is kind of like pretty basic, you know, uh, and yet when Paul writes, it's a little more eloquent, you know, the type of, of uh, Greek that he uses is a little better, you know, so the characteristic of the people remain the same, even though God uses them to write his truth down. So he's not changing it. If, if God were to use, to have inspire all of us, <clears throat> to write a paragraph here about him, we would be able to figure out that, oh, that's, this sounds just like Pat. God used Pat. He doesn't change our character. He doesn't, 
isn't change our uniqueness. He uses our uniqueness to bring his own truth. Okay? That's one of the attempts that they try to uh, attack the Bible's uh, reliability because the gospel share different things. So they say, how can it be true? Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, just in, in, that, in that vein, just about everything that is in Mark is in Matthew and Luke as well. Almost everything. So, most scholars think that because of that reason, Mark was not only written first, but it was used as the basis for Mark, uh, for Matthew, and for Luke to build on. Okay? Now, scholars also notice that there are things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are consistent, but the, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew, I'm sorry, they're, they're in Matthew and Luke that are not in, in Mark. So they think that there was another document out there floating around that they've called Q, that we haven't found. But it was also something that, that the gospel writers used as a basis to add to the inspired addition to their gospels. Okay? Now, the one, the, those three gospels are called the synoptic gospels. Sin meaning the same, optic meaning same looking. They, say, they all look and sound similar. Now, it's an interesting thing as we get into this a little bit later, we'll find that um, as Christianity grew, different areas used the different, one of the four different Gospels. We didn't put all the Gospels together until a little bit later in the history of the church. But in Rome, they liked the Luke, the Luke Gospel, you know. And, and over here, they like Mark, you know, because they had a, a, an affinity or an attachment to Mark. He was there, so we used Mark's gospel. But it was later on when they gathered them together and said, you know what? We need to read all of these. These are all inspired. And they all give us insights into who Jesus was in his ministry. So, anyway. Any questions about that? Yes. Why is John different? Okay. John was written... John just is different. It includes different things. Okay, first of all, it was written uh, probably in the 80, year 80 or 90, and the Gospels were written in 40 and maybe 50 or 60. Um, you know, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, Luke and John. Uh, John writes everything in sevens. There are seven major miracles. There are seven... Uh, this, uh, speeches by Jesus, there are seven descriptions, there are seven I am's in there. I mean, I don't know how he could do it. I mean, unless he was like a poet, you know. But there are just seven different things, uh, I'm sorry, there are different things in the Gospel of John about the ministry of Jesus than what we typically see written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. So that, that style is different too. The Matthew, Mark, Luke are more historical. Um, John's a little more literary. Um, it seems like he was targeting people who were Gnostic, and we'll talk about that later on, so that there was a certain purpose behind his writing because he was trying to set apart Christianity from what the Gnostics were trying to... Um, they were trying to co-opt the words co-opt the faith and use it for their own advantage and he was saying no this is really Jesus is different than what the Gnostics are talking about so there's a little bit different purpose a little bit different style of writing and new things that are not in Matthew Mark and Luke okay so inerrancy what it doesn't mean Inerrancy doesn't mean that the men who wrote Scripture were inerrant, but the product of their inspiration, Scripture, is inerrant. And this is called verbal inspiration. So we weren't saying that Peter didn't make mistakes or was inerrant. We're saying that the product of what he wrote was inerrant because that was guided by God. In the Catholic Church today, the Pope can speak inerrantly. He's inerrant. When he takes his seat in the chair of Peter, which is the cathedra, 
and that's where we get the word cathedral from, okay? When he takes his seat in, in, in that chair of Peter, and he speaks, the Catholic Church says he's inerrant. All right? We don't believe that. We don't believe that about Pope. We don't believe that even about the writers. We believe that, that they can make mistakes. But when they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the result of that inspiration was inherent. Okay, so you see the difference? The work they did was inerrant. They themselves were just regular people. They were regular pencils, regular brushes, regular markers. God just picked them up and used them to write with. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So, Scripture tells us that forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So, whatever God wanted to inspire someone <clears throat> was all created in heaven. It comes from heaven. It flows from heaven. It flows from God. And it came down in errant. And it, was, and it was written down in errant. But it doesn't say forever, O Lord, Peter was settled in heaven. It doesn't say forever, O Lord, Matthew was settled in heaven. It was what they wrote was settled in heaven. Okay, does that make sense to you? Okay. By the way, if something doesn't make sense to you, or you hear me say something that like sounds off, <clears throat> could be, just let me know. Because maybe in saying things, I could have made an error, a mistake. Because guess what? I'm not in error. <laughs> okay? Okay, Scripture of Matthew says, <clears throat> For truly I say to you, this is Jesus saying, Until heaven and earth passes away, not a smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. So, God is saying, through Jesus, who is God, that again, nothing in Scripture... Is, is going to be changed. It's, it's, it, is, it is immutable. It is correct. There's no reason for changing it. It's perfect. It is pure. It's, it's, you know, it's inspired and it's inerrant. So we don't have to worry about that. When, <clears throat> well, well, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later. But when it talks about not every, uh, every smallest letter or stroke, when Jewish scribes would have to make a new scroll of the Old Testament, okay, what they would do is they wouldn't like look at that word and write that word out, and then look at the next word and write it out. They would literally look at the one stroke of the one letter, and they'd make that one stroke, and then they'd look at the original, and they'd make the next stroke. So it may take them like four or five strokes just to make one Hebrew letter. They did it one stroke at a time. <coughs> and then when they got the entire thing finished, what they would do is they would take the document, the old original document that was falling apart and they were going to replace. And they started from the front, the first letter and the last letter, and they started moving all the way through until they got to the exact middle letter of that entire scroll. Could have been 10,000 and 100,000 little, you know, letters. And then they would do that with the next, the new, the new one that they had made. And if it landed on the same letter, they thought it was an accurate reproduction. If it didn't land on the same letter, they destroyed it. And they started all over again. That's how careful they were of transcribing to a new version of the scriptures. All right. Inerrancy. What if we make a mistake? We make a mistake. In other words, it's inerrant. Uh, it's inspired. But what if I make a mistake in teaching? So here are four rules to follow in us understanding scripture. Um, first, it's when it's accurately interpreted. Second, when it's accurately translated. Third, in view of our limited knowledge of history and science. <clears throat> what do we mean by that? 
Well, we don't know everything in science. So there might be something in the Bible that we look at and say, well, that's, I don't know if that's possible, you know. Well, we don't know all of science. And something may be in there that's an event, and we don't have any record of that. But we have just a limited access or a limited knowledge of history. So far, though, according to my understanding, every historical piece of evidence, every historical piece of evidence that's come to us that we've learned has always corroborated what's written in the Bible. No one has found a mistake. As far as anything that has to do with history, it is one of the most accurate books in antiquity. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that. <clears throat> and then the fourth thing is that you allow for figurative expressions. You know, like we talked about um, God saying he will carry you up on his pinions. You know, again, does God have wings? No, it's just a figure of speech that the writer used to try to describe what he saw in nature, and in nature, you know, when a, when a little eagle, a baby eagle is, is flying, the mother catches it under its pinions and holds it up in the air, and, you know, until it could fly itself. You know, so that's the picture that God inspired someone to try to explain to us what he does when he carries us along. Any questions about that? <clears throat> so, as far as inerrancy goes, we also have the witness of Jesus. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, Jesus, when he came to earth, had all of the Old Testament scriptures in front of him. He saw them all. He's never recorded as having said, Oh, by the way, that one passage in Isaiah, yeah, you got to erase that word because that's wrong. He never said that. It's never recorded anywhere. <clears throat> so Jesus is pointing out how accurate the text was. <clears throat> so how do we know that? Well, Jesus challenged the position of the Sadducees on the resurrection based on the tenses, just the tenses of a verb. God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and the Pharisees were, and Jesus was telling the Pharisees, he says, I am. He says, he says, he's not the God of the dead, is he? If he was the God of the dead, it would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he still is, because there is a resurrection. They are alive. So he talked about how important it was down to the tense of a verb that was accurate. <clears throat> Another place that Jesus talked about <clears throat> was that it was the account of Jonah's time in the fish was just as his own death and how he was going to be buried for three days in the tomb. Okay? This is kind of funny to me in a way because <clears throat> when I lived in Oak Park, uh, one of the politicians was coming around knocking door to door because he was going to run for alderman or something like that. And I happen to know that he went to a Lutheran church where they decided that um, Scripture had stories in it that maybe weren't accurate. Okay, so they didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And and I and I just I knew him. My kids went to school with his kids. So I knew this guy, and I said, hey, I heard that they're talking about this over at Grace Lutheran. <clears throat> and uh, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We said, we had a discussion about this. And I said, what, you know, what passages are you talking about? He goes, well, Jonah and a fish. Who's going to live in a fish for three days? He goes, that's just a, you know, it's just a, a, a story to kind of get across the idea, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I'm, I'm looking at it, and I said, I said, I think that's really interesting that you should point out that one. He goes, oh, why? I said, because that's one that Jesus actually said, just as Jonah was in the fish, so I will be in the grave. Crickets. <laughs> you know, just as. So Jesus was pointing out that even as you go through Scripture, I mean, he was there. He was here on earth. 
He could have pointed out things that were wrong, and he didn't. So by virtue of that, he basically put his stamp of approval of the inerrancy of Scripture. You know, so when someone comes to you and says, ah, it's Scripture, you know, there's a lot of mistakes in it. Number one, which ones are you talking about? Most of the time they haven't really looked. And two, how come Jesus didn't say it was a mistake? You know, he could have. He corrected people in other places. Why wouldn't he correct this? He didn't. So the third thing, the third bullet point there is the inerrancy of Scripture is consistent with the character of God. God cannot lie. Okay? If he's going to create something that's a lie, it's inconsistent with who he is. He's almighty. He can do anything. If he can't keep his word pure and inerrant, then he's not God. And then finally, he's able to do as he pleases. So he's able to actually do and, and uh, make his scripture, his word to us, his revelation to us, without error. Any thoughts or questions at this point? You guys heard some of this stuff before? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so more of Jesus' testimony. You might ask, wasn't Jesus quoting Hebrew scriptures to the Hebrews to the Jewish crowds? If so, there is nothing to translate incorrectly. In other words, people were Jewish, he's Jewish, so he's talking in Hebrew to them. And there's no possibility for missing a translation because he's not translating anything. Well, the reality is this. Even though Jesus probably knew Hebrew and spoke Hebrew, <clears throat> he would have spoken Aramaic in his everyday life because that's the language they spoke in Palestine. According to the Gospel accounts, Jesus quoted most often the Septuagint, which was actually translated in Greek. So when Jesus was quoting, he was actually quoting a translation of the original Hebrew. And even then, he didn't say, oh, by the way, that Greek word was the wrong word for Hebrew. We should have used this one instead. He never said even that the translations were incorrect. So God is superintending the accuracy the accuracy of his word. He's making sure that as the word, he's called the word, as the consummate communicator, he's going to communicate everything to us accurately so that we know that we can trust and put our faith in him. Okay? This is hard for some people. You know, people think, well, you know, it's kind of like the telephone game. You know? Somebody starts over here and starts something, by the time it gets over here, it's like a whole new story. But, you know, we'll, we'll show that there is, we're going to look at now the legal document, the documentational evidence of the accuracy of Scripture. So, <clears throat> it's been 2,000 years since the Gospels were written, Acts were written, the Epistles were written. What if, like the telephone game, errors were made over the years? What if what we have today is not what was originally written? So in other words, this is not about inerrancy. This is about the accurate handing down of Scripture so that what was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is what we have today, the same thing. Okay? So it didn't change along the way. Okay? That's what we're talking about. We're not necessarily talking about the inaccuracy. We're talking about the the textual integrity that the, the, the gospel that was written when Matthew wrote it is the Matthew that we have today. Do we have proof of that? Okay? Well, it turns out that if we lost the entire New Testament, it could be completely recovered from the writings of the early church fathers. So, for the first three or four hundred years of the church, there were these guys that sat around and they took apart the Bible. And they were trying to understand uh, what it meant for them uh, as people, for what it meant for the people that they led in their churches. You know, so they were, they were wrestling with the theology of it, the doctrine that is in it, so that they could teach accurately. 
And they quoted the Bible so often that if we lost all the Bibles in the world, we could recreate the New Testament from their writings because it's so they used them so often. So that we have that. <clears throat> so we know from the three of you know three hundreds or four hundreds that we it's accurate from that. Second, the sheer volume of manuscripts, papyri, fact fragments show a variation of a little over 1% in, in the, the textual, in the, in the text, and none of it is in critical areas of faith. So we have tens of thousands of fragments and entire documents of the New Testament. <clears throat> and when you look at them, there's less than, or there's just a little over 1% error in words. And those have nothing to do with the key components of our faith. It's like, you know, might say uh, his instead of, uh, uh, I don't know, instead of naming Jesus, it might say him instead of Jesus. You know, something, something simple as that. Um, but nothing that would impact what we believe. Nothing. <clears throat> okay, there's something else that's interesting that you all have to wrestle with. I'll bring it up. <clears throat> there's the difference between the majority text or the critical text. So let me tell you what that means. <clears throat> Would you believe to be more accurate if there were 10,000 documents that said the same thing? Or would you believe to be more accurate the oldest one document that we have? You see what I'm saying? Which one would you believe? Would you believe if we had 10 or 15,000 that all said the same thing? Or would you look and say, no, the one we have that's the oldest, that's probably the one that's the most accurate. Which one would you, which one would you? You do the 10,000, okay. Anybody else? Has it taken an opinion? I get the one. The one? The oldest one. Well, it's because oldest you know, yeah, we're the oldest one. We're like that. The <laughs> oldest one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the debate that's out there. <clears throat> so, the King James Version, okay, and uh, a lot of versions that are after that, um, I think the NSAB may be part of that, uh, the New American Standard Bible Version are the majority texts. Those Bibles are, are used, the vast majority of documents that we've discovered as the basis for their translation of the New Testament. The NIV was written later, after an even older version of the New Testament was discovered. And so they use that. <clears throat> okay? Now, there's, in the, in the textual difference, <clears throat> there's nothing that's in the faith area that's a problem. That's all the same. But there's these little subtleties, you know. One of the big ones, though, <clears throat> um, how many people like the story of the person that was um, the woman who was caught in adultery? Remember, the Pharisees grabbed her and dragged her before Jesus and said, what are you going to do with this woman? And he was like, hmm, got down on his hands and knees, wrote something in the sand, gets up and he goes, I think the person without sin should cast the first stone. That's pretty good. Well, that's a majority text. That's not in the earliest version of the Bible that we have, the, the earliest text of the Bible. But, for thousands of years, I mean, well, not thousands of years, but it, it rings so true with what Jesus sounded like, what he would talk about and do, that what happens is that people have left it in the Bible. And then if you look at your Bible, you'll see it's in italics. Because they want you to know that even though um, it's not in the, in the newer text, it's in the oldest text. Okay, so that's just a debate that's called a majority 
versus the critical text. The critical text being the oldest version, the um, majority text being the ones that we have lots of. So it's just a uniqueness within Scripture. It doesn't impact any area of our faith. Um, it's just an interesting oddity. So what do you think about that? Are you okay with that? <clears throat> I know I'm disappointed. I really like that story. I think it's just so clever what Jesus said. You know. So you would say the NIV. I think the NIV is is called the critical text. So it's the oldest. It goes. It's it's translation from the most recently discovered and some of the oldest texts. Or, or, you know, codexes or scrolls or whatever they wrote on papyri. What would you say to somebody who says, okay, well, how do you know they've got an older document out there that <clears throat> has um, <clears throat> uh, difference in, like, a critical area of faith? Yeah, I think what I would tell them is, you're right, there might be an older document out there. Uh, we have had archaeologists looking for thousands of, you know, probably 1,500 years, I don't know how long they've been digging around looking for things. Um, they found a whole bunch of, like tens of thousands of documents from the 3rd and 4th century in Egypt back in 1940, and they've been pouring through that. A lot of those are Gnostic. Um, we just don't have any evidence of it. I mean, is it possible? Yeah. But based on what we have, Bible's true. The, the, the textual integrity of the Bible is true based on what we have. This may be a silly question, but where are they located? Yeah, they're all over the place. Okay. Yeah, one of the one of the oldest uh, copies of the book of James is at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So I mean, in Champaign. Really? Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> what? You know, but they're literally all over the place. Okay. Yeah, and we're going to find out, too, that when uh, the New Testament was compiled, you know, one of, the, one of the issues was to get it, was to gather from all over, you know, you know uh, we think of Rome and we think of Europe as the cradle of Christianity, but as far as the academic and the theology and the thinking and all the writing, most of that was North Africa. Carthage, Alexandria, you know, I mean, some of the earliest writings that are extra-biblical of Christians, like their journals and stuff like that, come out of Carthage, and they're probably African, black Christians, you know, kind of, we think of Christianity probably incorrectly as being primarily a white religion, you know, and other people do too, and it's really more diverse than we would ever imagine. But it's all over the place. I mean, the, you know, there's some in Egypt, there's some in, oh, Rome's, you know, I mean, they, they've got a library of people <coughs> going through and they're like, what is this? You know, and they're like, find this uh, Vaticanus, something like that. I can't remember what the Latin term is, but one of the critical texts, the older texts they found in, in, in the Vatican. So let's take a look at the critical, let's look at some of these comparisons, just comparing the New Testament with other works of antiquity. So the works of Plato were written between, you know, 400 to 340 uh, BC. Um, the earliest copy we have is 900 AD. So that's 1,200 different years difference, and we only have seven copies. And everybody looks at the works of Plato like they're accurate, okay? Thucydides and these other guys, Euripides, Caesar. By, by the way, this is really interesting. Do you know there's more documentational evidence? We have more documents, written documents, about Jesus walking on the water than we have for the existence of Julius Caesar. Okay? So, like, maybe there's... 30,000 about Jesus walking on water, and there's probably maybe a thousand about Julius Caesar. Um, Aristotle's, you know, wrote 384 to 322 BC, 
uh, earliest copy we have is 1100 AD. That's like, you know, 1400 years difference. We have 193 copies. We don't know the percentage of accuracy. I didn't have that data here. But in the Homeric Iliad, which was written in 762 BC, the earliest copy we have is from the 10th century, so like the 900s. So that's about 1600 to 1700 years between the original and the one we have now. We have a lot of copies of it, and they're about 95% correct. There's, there's a 5% difference in theirs. Now, let's take a look at the New Testament. The New Testament was written in the first century AD. Uh, the earliest copies we have are from about the year 100 to 300. So it's like within, maybe within 50 years of Jesus' birth, of Jesus' death, and 300 years of his death. So it's, we have the original copies are between the time of you know, 60 to 240 years. We have 5,600 Greek copies in the Pyre. And we have 19,000 Syriac, Aramaic, and Coptic copies. So what we know is that the textual integrity of what was in the Gospels, what was in the Book of Acts, what's in the Epistles, is what we have today. No, nothing got changed. It was it was superintended by the Holy Spirit so that whatever was written back then appears to be what we have now. So you can trust that no one changed it over all those years. The New Testament is actually the standard that's used for all other works of antiquity. That's the ten. That's the gold bar. After that, Everybody judges how accurate their book of antiquity is based on the, the evidence that we have for the accuracy of the New Testament. It's really, it's great. Okay, where are we at there? I thought maybe you'd like to see this. <clears throat> this is what some of the fragments look like. So this is the uh, second century, this is John 18, and they could tell from what pieces they have in here in the Greek that this is from John 18. This is uh, Philemon. This, they found this in the year 125. This is uh, Oxyrhynicus. This I was talking about, the, the, they found thousands of documents in Egypt. That's this one here. And this is Matthew 23, 30 through 34. Obviously, they literally piece it together. They see some words here, they see some words there, and then they look at the at the, the different pieces of New Testament they have, and they go, oh, wow, this is from Matthew. And this is Matthew, you know, 23. So that's what some of this stuff looks like when they find it. And you can see it's, it's written on cloth. It's written on papyri, which is like a linen. Uh, uh, some of it's written on animal skins. You know, so it's uh, very interesting. So how did we get what we have? How do we determine what to put in the Bible and what not to have in the Bible? The Old Testament was pretty easy. By the way, the word canon is Greek for rule or measuring standard. So when it says the canon, is talking about um, what's in it that's based on a, a fixed framework of determining what is and what isn't. So the Old Testament canon generally was recognized and accepted as it was being spoken and written and compiled. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, a, a lot of debate. Jeremiah got up and he said, Thus saith the Lord. And everyone was like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know. And, and, and what happened was, is that events supporting their oracles, in other words, they made a prophecy, and it happened. Or, there was a manifestation of the Spirit in them. They did a miracle. They did something. So everybody knew that God, the Spirit of God was on these individuals, and they were trusted immediately. Okay? And so whenever they, they would write, or someone wrote for them, those writings were automatically brought into the same uh, status as the writings of Moses, which is the Pentateuch, the first five uh, 
five, uh, first five uh, books of the, of the uh, Old Testament. So, it was pretty easy for them. Okay. Now, the one thing that's very interesting is that we don't, until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we didn't have ancient, ancient scrolls of the Old Testament. Because Jewish tradition was, remember how they wrote them? And then they counted back to the middle. And, and if the new, the new version uh, didn't match the old version, they would just destroy it. Well, if the new version matched the old version, they rolled up the new version and it destroyed the old version. Okay, so we, we didn't have too many at all until they found some in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those were from about 200 B.C. And it just... It just blew away all the people who were critical of the Bible. You know, so we could talk about that some other time. But it, it had a, a huge, a tidal wave impact on how accurate the, the scripture was and, and how prophecies were really prophecies written before they happened instead of after they happened. So, the canon of the Old Testament, the Catholics have uh, more books in their Old Testament than we do. And they're like, what? How can that happen? Well, um, the early church fathers um, began addressing uh, books of unknown origin uh, as Apocrypha. Uh, even though Apocrypha means hidden or secret, as in the source or uh, the source or the author, to the early church fathers it became it came to be being forged. So there are books, the Old Testament book of, uh, in, in the Catholic Old Testament, there's the book of Tobit, Judith, Baruch, Sirach, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, and First and Second Maccabees were written, this makes a big difference. They were written not in Hebrew, they were written in Greek, and they were written uh, at a different time than the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, so Hebrew scriptures kind of stopped being written about 400 years before Jesus. These are more written during that 400-year time. Okay, so a lot of people said, well, they're not written in Hebrew, and they were written later, so we don't think they're holy scriptures. Now, I was just at a funeral at a Catholic church, and they read from the Book of Wisdom, and they called it the Holy Scriptures. So I, I don't know if that was just a mistake on her part, the lady who read it, or the Catholic Church actually sees them as holy scriptures, as set apart. Luther said that they were very valuable for reading, but they were not equal to sacred scripture. Catholics actually get the idea of praying to saints from one of these apocryphal books. That is not in the Bible anywhere, nowhere else in, the Bible, in our Bible, but it is in one of the apocryphal books, and I can't remember which one it is. So, um, I've read them. First and Second Maccabees are great. It's a great history account of of um, the Maccabees, you know, getting rid of, of the Greeks and the Romans out of out of Palestine, you know, for a number of generations. But they're not holy scriptures. They're not the Bible. But uh, and, and you know, so here's here's the Catholic Bible. By the way, the Jerusalem Bible is an excellent Bible. It's an excellent translation. It's really good. It kind of came out the same time as the NIV, and it's kind of like in that style. So, you want to read them? You know, the apocryphal books, go ahead. Just realize that they're not inerrant. They're not inspired. Okay, the New Testament is a little bit different. New Testament scripture, scripture was not finalized until Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea put it together, a group of the group of New Testament documents in 325 AD. And we have to thank a heretic for this, Marcion. So why do we thank a heretic for our, our New Testament? Well, Marcion um, was in Rome. He was a well-respected uh, man in the church. But he began to really believe that the God of the Old Testament was not the God of the that Yahweh was this God who was kind of authoritarian and legalistic 
and mean, and, and either through ignorance or out of disobedience to the true God, the Father, that we see in the New Testament, that Jesus, his son, that uh, he created a physical realm. When it was never supposed to be physical. It was supposed to be all spiritual. Okay? And the Father God, who is the, the king God, the better God, had to send Jesus to fix it all up again. That's kind of a rough, you know, explanation of that. But as a result, what he did was he didn't believe in any of the Old Testament <coughs> because he felt that was the Old Testament God. And he only believed in one gospel, the Gospel of Luke. And that one, he took out all the references to Jewish history. And he made a list of all of Paul's letters. And he said the Gospel of Luke and all of Paul's letters were the New Testament. And the leaders of the church said, yikes, this guy's off his rocker. we got to do something about this. So they got together and they decided by the whole group of all these bishops that came from all over the known Christian world at the time, they were called together by Constantine. And one of the things they did is they put together a list of the, the books that they felt were inspired by God uh, for the church. And that's where we got our New Testament. You know, it took a little longer for like a book of James, took a little bit longer for some of John's writings to get in there, but essentially... The whole church came together and said, this is it. So we believe um, that the Holy Spirit guided the church to select which, which uh, books were in the New Testament and which one. So let's take a look at the tests for inclusion. They had to be written by an apostle, or they had to be written by someone closely related to an apostle, like Luke traveled with, with Paul and Mark traveled with Peter. Even though they weren't apostles, they were very close to them. And they probably took down all the information that they had about Jesus from, from uh, these apostles. It was written during the period of Revelation. So in other words, it was written probably from the year 90 and earlier. And there existed a quality of truth in them as it related to other scripture. In other words, there was nothing found in these documents that contradicted anything else in the Bible. In fact, it reinforced it. Or expanded on it. And then lastly, it was universally accepted by the church as scripture throughout the entire church age. Everybody looks at these to this day in the church. The Catholic, Orthodox, uh, Protestant, and they say, you know what, this is scripture. These are the scriptures. Um, I'll try and get this real quickly here because uh, I want to get you out of here. Uh, the canon in the New Testament has apocrypha. There are apocryphal books out there as well. You'll hear about the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and there's hundred others. So why weren't they included? Well, if you watch PBS, they tell you that they were included because it's conspiracy. Because, in fact, Mary Magdalene had an affair with Jesus, and they had children, and they ran off to Spain together. Oh, yeah, I know. What's that all about? Well, here's the reality of it. They called these books apocryphal as well, or forged. First is that they didn't pass the test that we just discussed. They weren't written by apostles. They weren't written by anybody that was closely related to them. They were written hundreds of years later. Okay? It'd be like me, it'd be like me writing a book um, uh, about the Civil War and, and saying that my name was Abraham Lincoln. Okay, I just used their name. So anyway, the second century books, that's when the first few came out, were Gnostic, and those books were basically written to reject all the other scriptures. And then the second wave of apocryphal books came out the third and fourth century, and those writers told the unsubstantiated stories of characters in the canon, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Jesus himself. They were never rejected by the church, but they were never taken seriously. So, that's how we got some of the New Testament. And that's how come some of the books that are included or talked about, like in PBS, are not included. 
You got a lot today. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> I hope it was interesting. Though. Yeah. Definitely. Sorry.